The Murder Shelf Book Club contains disturbing content relating to real-life crimes. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Episode 9 of Murder Shelf Book Club, where today we will be discussing the book The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy by Elizabeth Kendall. Liz wrote, I cared deeply for Ted when I wrote the original book. It took years of work for me to accept who he was and what he had done. I still feel lingering shame that I had loved Ted Bundy. Never did I forget that real women had been murdered for no other reason than they were attractive and friendly. The hideous reality of their deaths became my reality, too. Their tragedy was my trauma. For a long time, I lived with the guilt of wondering if Ted saw me in these women, if killing them was a compulsive effort to kill something he hated in me. I am thankful to have survived. Welcome back, Murder Shelf Bookies. I'm Jill. And I'm Tara. For those of you just tuning in, we're part of a true crime book club in the greater Philadelphia area and love discussing true crime together. We've decided to turn our love of reading and fascination of true crime into a podcast so that we could share it with you. Every month, we review and discuss a book that we've pulled off our murder shelf. During the first episode of the month, we review what we've pulled off the shelf. And we don't want to give you a boring, linear timeline. We like to follow the steps of the author to give you the story from their point of view. In Second Cast, which has ended up being the last part of our series, we pull a little more on those wayward threads in the book that completely fascinated us and take a much deeper dive. As always, our heartfelt thanks goes to all of you who have been turning in listening to us, especially during these crazy times. We're still in quarantine. So please excuse the audio quality. We're doing the best we can to keep you entertained while you're stuck at home. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Wear a mask, scarf, or whatever whenever you go out. Necessary runs only. And don't practi- go out. <laughs> yeah, just don't. <laughs> just don't. Right. And practice social distancing by listening to us as well as your other favorite podcasts. And please, don't hoard the TP. Please don't <laughs> hoard the TP. There are others in need. All right, Tara, what are we pulling off the shelf today? This month, we're going to be taking a look at The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy by Elizabeth Kendall. This is the updated and expanded edition with a contribution from Molly, Liz's daughter, talking about her experiences with Ted. Here goes my dog. Oh, we love the dog. It's okay. I know. <laughs> so Liz Kendall, just a brief touch with her. She was Ted's longtime girlfriend which I'm sure if you're a Ted Bundy fan, you know exactly who she is. This edition that we're reading is a republished edition coming in at about 210 pages and also became the inspiration for Amazon Prime's docuseries, Ted Bundy, Falling for a Killer, and the Netflix movie, Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile. Say that 10 times fast. No. She can't. No, I absolutely can't. Uh, Originally published in 1981, The Phantom Prince documents the intimate relationship between Liz and Ted who we know was one of the most notorious serial killers in American history, ultimately responsible for possibly the deaths of 30 women, maybe even more. I think it's probably more. 
I definitely think so, especially from what we've learned in the book, what we've learned in these series and everything that we watched. Liz's real name is Elizabeth Kolpfer. Kendall is a pseudonym utilized to protect her real identity and that of her daughter, Molly. Kendall has also been used to prevent further association with her family and the name Ted Bundy. You can understand why she wanted to distance herself from that. Yeah, that's understandable. Liz shared her life with Ted for a number of years and offers a unique perspective into the life they shared. Were the signs always there? Did she have a clue? As we move through the book, Liz, blinded by love, ignores some of the signs that we think would be blatantly obvious that something might actually be wrong. However, in the summer of 1974, when two young women went missing from Lake Sammamish near Seattle, Washington, Liz couldn't ignore her gut anymore. While she didn't want to believe that it was her Ted who was involved, there were shocking similarities to the Ted who appeared in area newspapers, who is now considered to be responsible for the disappearance of women around the state. Disappearances that would eventually lead to murder. Liz was able to collaborate with director Joe Berlinger on the Netflix movie Extremely Wicked, Shockingly Evil, and Vile to get the story straight. Liz goes on to say that Zac Efron and Lily Collins, playing Ted and Liz, did a fantastic job and that they got it right. Which makes me feel good about watching that movie, knowing that it was authentic in her eyes. Lily Collins even reached out to Liz to ensure that she was properly portraying Liz, even sharing material to help her get into the right mindset. Which is really awesome on her part, too. Yes. Making sure she was doing right by Liz. Yes. You know, however, there's never enough time in a movie to get all the details right. Therefore, it was time to lay it all out there. It became essential for them to tell their story in a way that they experienced it. And releasing the second edition and also participating in the documentary for the first time, Ted Bunty Falling for a Killer, that was the way to do it. I definitely think so. I mean, we'll get into this in more detail, but there was a little bit more in terms of the documentary than you get from the book, too, such as women's rights, that kind of thing. Yeah. So we'll definitely talk about that. Yep. And Molly's contribution to her mother's story is the first time that she has told her story publicly. It's definitely a shocker, as it reveals some aspects of Ted that he was always reluctant himself to even speak about. He really didn't want anyone knowing that side of him. We'll get to Molly's story a little bit later, probably in second cast, as there's a lot to get through with just Liz's version of events. But first... This is book club. We need snacks and definitely a drink. So, Joe, what'd you make for us today? All right, I had to give this one some thought. Since many of the victims and their families in this story are from the Northwest United States, I decided that the perfect tasty snack to go with our book club would be a salmon dip. Ooh. So once again, I kept my eyes on the ease of preparation, especially now when we're limited in our grocery trips. Mm-hmm. So hopefully this isn't too tough for you to make. Um, The recipe is on our blog at www.murdershelfbookclub.com. And if you eat gluten-free crackers, it's perfectly fine for all of the celiac folks out there, too. Cream cheese, mayo, little lemon juice, salt, pepper, little curry powder, basil. You mix it together. Add the smoked salmon, drained, forked, no bones or skin. Chop up a little green onion. Mix it up. Refrigerate for an hour. And you are ready to go. And I'm enjoy. ready for it. Yeah. You can use regular salmon. doesn't have to be smoked because it already has plenty of flavor because of all the spices. And it is delicious. I think you will like it. Again, it's a little bit different. It's definitely fun. And um, Tara, what are we drinking with my smoked salmon dip? 
Well, Jill, it's freaking rosé season (laughs) all day until at least September. At least that's how long my rosé season lasts. More like two seasons. Once it starts to get warm out, that's really what I like to drink. It kind of hits all those things that you really like, Mm. especially for someone who likes red wine a whole lot more than white wine. Rosé just is the perfect mix for you. The one that I picked today, this one's special. This one's very different. This is the 2019 Gateway Vino Verde Rosé from Wine Awesomeness. Wine Awesomeness is a subscription service for wine. You don't necessarily have to be a member, but I do get the mixed six-pack from them. They basically curate a box for you, so you don't ever really know what you're going to get. Because I do a mix, I get three red and three white usually. Because I have sparkling and rosé turned on, I might get a sparkling or rosé thrown in there. So it's always usually a surprise. That's Um, nice. I really like it. What? That's nice. It is really nice. And you don't have to be a super wine snob about it either, just because you're always trying something new. They also do themed packs. And they send you like a little booklet inside there too, describing what the theme is and giving you recipes that go with all the wines they are getting. They probably hit the nail on the head with this one since we're all staying indoors because usually I don't go to my slow cooker. But this one is actually slow cooker recipes just to kind of ease up, make it a little bit easier and go with the wines. Mm. So they also give you that booklet. You have all your wines in there and tasty notes handy. So this one I happened to see in an email that they sent. So it was in addition to my box. This one's 80% Espadero and 20% Torriga Nacional, which are both native grapes to Portugal, where Vino Verde hails from. And when a white wine eventually turns into rosé, it's because we let those grape skins kind of sit and ferment a little bit longer just to get some of that color to it. So it's not going to be white, but definitely a rosé. So Vino Verde is fun because it does have a little fizz to it. Not like a champagne or sparkling wine, just a slight little fizz on the tongue. So from this, we're getting strawberry and raspberry on the nose, which is typical of rosé, but the palate is definitely so much more. We get strawberry, cranberry, and citrus with that fizzy pop amidst some nitanical flowery notes. Pop. So this is definitely going to cut through that creaminess of the smoked salmon dip and pair nicely with the smokiness of the fish. Oh, that just sounds fantastic. Now I wish we weren't doing this remotely. I know, right? It's going to be so well, perfect. We're going to have to have all these together at some point when we're back. We'll just have a recap of all of our recipes that we missed together. Absolutely. You have to take some pictures and get together. It's just cramping our style a little bit, but we still have book club. Mm-hmm. We we're, still do. We persevere. All right, guys. So let's uh, let's sit back and listen as we go into detail about the good times between Liz and Ted when she finally goes to the police with her fears even though she doesn't think he's capable, and we'll see the man behind the mask and what we ultimately found him to be capable of. Liz is almost embarrassed by what she has written, especially in the original preface, and we'll start there, from Liz back in 1981. Writing this book was a cathartic experience, like a tumor being removed from her brain and a fog finally lifting. From the moment she met Ted, the intensity of response and her love for him really scared her. She said, I still care what happens to Ted. A part of me will always love him. It had been seven years since that first inkling of suspicion and only three years since they were confirmed. Even then, it still hit her as if it was the first time. She starts us off near the end of it all, when he first goes to prison, but quickly takes us back to the beginning where she first met Ted, 
and her life changed forever. Ted had been found guilty of aggravated kidnapping and first-degree felony assault of Carol Duranch in Salt Lake City on March 1, 1976. Liz still had her doubts as to whether or not Ted could commit such an atrocity. Nevertheless, it was all her fault. All her fault. All her fault. Ted was going to prison because she was the one who had turned the police attention to him because of the suspicions she had. She was beside herself. Ted had been cleared twice by two different police departments. Why was he guilty now? Because she had supplied them with evidence. Her fault. Her fault. They said that Ted had tried to lure Carol into his Volkswagen bug, handcuffed her in place, and then tried to beat her over the head with a crowbar. Police also felt that Ted might have been linked to the several missing persons and murders in the area, which were also linked to eight murders of young women in Seattle in the first months of 1974. Now, flash forward to July 1978, where she watches Ted on trial in Florida from the comfort of her couch across the country in Seattle, where the verdict is guilty for the rape and murder of two women at Chi Omega, a sorority house at Florida State University, and severely attacking three other women the same night. This time, she knows he's guilty. He had confessed to her in February when he was caught and arrested. Florida prosecutors had wanted Liz to testify. Her life with Ted would be of great interest, especially their sex life. They really like to focus on that. Well, they would. He's mm-hmm. a sex lust killer. Mm-hmm. Right? She appreciated her privacy, and her name never came up publicly, and she really preferred to keep it that way. Uh, I would. I don't blame her. Yeah. All right. Now, Liz had originally agreed to testify, but she had changed her mind. Now, the police even threatened her, but the matter was eventually dropped. And by 1978, Liz was a recovering alcoholic. Mm -hmm. She was worried that she would be torn apart. And she wasn't wrong. She would be later referred to as, quote, a flake in renditions of their story. Ted had asked to be returned back to Washington, but Florida, they wanted to watch him burn. I wonder if he can still get any of those t-shirts from when he was being executed. Burn, Bundy, burn. Yeah, that was a a pretty disturbing time. I do remember that. Yeah. Watching them chanting. Just like letting Joe Exotic out of prison nowadays. Have you watched that documentary? Yes. Holy (laughs) mackerel. (laughs) I can't wait for them to write the book on that one. Because I'm pulling it off the shelf. Oh, right away. Yes. Yeah. (laughs) So we're going to go back to Utah in 1969, where Liz was just a young 24-year-old woman, and she was not happy with the direction of her life. Her two-year-old daughter, Molly, was a shining light in her life, but her marriage to her father, Jim, had been an absolute disaster. Liz's family were Jack Mormons, which is being a Mormon in name, but not in practice. And Liz's dad was a respected doctor, and her mom a nurse, until their first child was born. Then she became a stay-at-home mom who dedicated her time to taking care of their children. And they always wanted what was best for their kids. In high school, all Liz wanted to do was hang with her boyfriend, Ben, and ride around in his MGA sports car. They also enjoyed skiing, which was an activity that would continue to bring her joy in life. Liz wanted to marry Ben right away and start having babies, but Liz's parents thought otherwise. They wanted her to get a college education, and without much debate, Liz was off to college against her wishes. Oh, in hindsight, you wonder... I know. You can definitely see this trend throughout the book where 
we're coming into women's rights, rights to their body, individual freedoms, Liz still had that notion where she was the woman. The man should lead the relationship. She wanted to be a wife. She wanted to be a mother. She wanted him to stand up. Yes. Stand up. Be a man. Stand up. Be a man. And I guess that's why she wanted to marry Ben. Ben was the first man in her life. And we'll find out. He's not the last. But So her first week in college, she didn't make it into a sorority, which was probably due to her shyness, which was a persistent problem throughout her life, as she describes in the book. That shyness that was best alleviated by getting loose with a few drinks. She began to party a lot and was eventually suspended from school at the end of her first year for bad grades. Kind of like a good girl gone bad. Yeah. Which we know is not something to make light of, but it sometimes does happen, especially coming from a fairly dry area. Well, she wouldn't be the only shy girl that has used alcohol to loosen up and become more social. Mm-hmm. Yeah. She even called things off with Ben, though, whom she had wanted to marry. And she ends up sleeping with another man named Jim whom she would later marry, becoming the father of her child. And after their divorce, she realized she needed a change. She had always been part of a half, and she wanted a fresh start. So she and her friend Angie were convinced that Seattle might be the perfect place, and off they went. Liz said, I fell in love with Seattle at first sight. It was a brand new world for her. Water everywhere. Lake Washington to the east. Puget Sound to the west, and Lake Union in between. Although captivating, Liz didn't realize rent was going to be a lot higher than back in Utah. I'm just wondering if maybe she didn't realize a lot of things when she just decided to move out there. But her first place was a one-bedroom apartment that wasn't much by any standards. And unfortunately, poor little Molly would have to sleep on the couch until they could find something better. Mm. She needed money, and she started a job search at the University of Washington to see if she could land a secretarial position. And even walking across campus on the way to her interview, she actually witnessed one of the most violent civil rights protests in Seattle history. It was a violent demand on campus to have more African-Americans be hired for a construction job that was going on there. And she actually ended up being 45 minutes late to the interview as a result. The man whom she interviewed with said, don't worry, that kind of thing just happened. She ended up landing the job a few days later in one of the medical departments. Liz was even able to find a good daycare for Molly after that which was a big change from having family be able to take care of her. She still missed home and called her parents often, but she was definitely pleased with the decision to start her new life on her own. Getting into the groove of things and still a bit strapped for cash, Liz received a parking ticket one day. This felt like the end of the world, $20. How was she going to pay this on top of everything else? And as she complained to some of her new friends, they had a great idea to cheer her up. They would go out drinking and dancing. Sounds what do you, fun to me. What do you do when you're 20, 24 years old, right? Exactly. Well, this decision would change her life forever because it would lead her to Ted Bundy. They went to a bar called the Sandpiper Tavern in the University District where people were dancing, having fun, and the beer was flowing. She spotted this sandy-haired man from across the room and they danced once together and would continue to shoot each other these furtive glances throughout the night. Mm. Mm, right? You feel the butterflies, even though I know who this man is, but you know that feeling. But everyone's done this. You've been out and you've looked across the room and your eyes meet, right? Mm -hmm. So at one point, she noticed that he was looking sad, and she went over to speak to him. He hadn't asked her to dance again, and the beer that made the usually shy, tongue-tied Liz made her brave. 
She was surprised at herself being so casual with this man, you know, normally recalcitrant, but alcohol certainly helped. So he was easy to talk to and the laughter came naturally. She even told him she had been married and had a kid and that didn't faze him. He was a recent transplant to the Seattle area as well, coming from Philadelphia. Yup, hometown here, right, where he studied at Temple University and was going to law school in Washington. She had already planned their wedding in her head. Yup, here it was, marching down the aisle. He was her prince. He was perfect. And when it was time to leave, she asked Ted to uh, come with her. Oh, getting bold. Yeah, a little, little alcohol, right? Drops okay. your inhibitions. Now, Ted was the perfect gentleman. He drove Liz to the babysitters to pick up Molly. He picked her up and carried her to the car for Liz and held her as Liz drove so not to wake her up. Now, Liz didn't think she could take Ted home, so she asked him to stay. Now, she recalls sleeping fitfully and Ted kind of walking around the apartment at night. And at one point, she saw him standing at her dresser looking at her things. And she thought, oh, my God, my birth control pill is laid out there. What is he going to think? Well, what would she think? Yeah, what would she think? This man's walking around her apartment. I mean, looking at, oh, looking at her, good look. So bringing a man home is not something that Liz did ever. What was she thinking? Bringing a man home with her child sleeping in the next room, especially someone that Liz barely knew. Liz was thinking of the expectations of the day, the values that she believed in, especially from her Jack Mormon upbringing in Utah. I mean, this was something women didn't do. They were supposed to be proper. They were supposed to be courted. They were supposed to get married before doing this kind of thing. Now, we understand the apparent danger of bringing any man you don't know into your home around your child. But this was Ted. You know, he had that ability to put you at ease. So despite Ted making her coffee and eggs in the morning and acting as if this was a completely normal way to behave, Liz put the blame solely on herself for her behavior. She was embarrassed, wondering what she was thinking. Why did she act so inappropriately? And she just wanted the memory of her brazenness to be gone forever. And she decided she never wanted to see Ted again. This just kind of makes me laugh a little bit, only because, I mean, I think he even got Molly like up and out of bed too, yeah. to help have her help make breakfast and he was all normal but it's, it's Liz she's the problem yeah she's thinking in her head and got all of this going on but don't women do that yeah yeah but even like him sticking around and being there in the morning making her breakfast you would think that was this is a nice guy I got here right this is so sweet oh my gosh she's so good with my kid oh my gosh he made his breakfast oh my gosh and she's you know, being so hard on herself. But you understand. And the fact that we're saying these things about Ted Bundy is really ironic. (laughs) Well, this is how he's presenting now to her. We know the future. She's not a psychic. I know. (sighs) So anyway, even though she made this decision never to see Ted again, he shows up at her office in the parking lot as she's leaving the next day. Surprise. And Yeah, surprise. They fell into an easy conversation as if they had already been together for years. She ends up tossing him the keys to her car after they decide to have dinner together at her place that night. So much for never wanting to see him again, right? Yep, that didn't stick. 
So something that really kind of stuck with me, I'm sure it stuck with you, was a small ask that was made of Liz while Ted was making dinner. Ted asks her if she has fresh garlic, and she does. And her in her mind, she says, oh, my God, I did something right. I have fresh garlic. I did it right. It almost makes you really sad to think that this is something that she thought of doing as right. And I feel like she just felt like she was in the wrong since the beginning of their relationship. Yeah. And this she, is day one. <laughs> yeah. This is their first, you know, we're going to have dinner together as potentially, not even boyfriend, potentially boyfriend and girlfriend. Mm-hmm. And, oh my gosh, having garlic is, is a right. Well, is it not having garlic mean that you've done something horrendously wrong? I know. It's Apparently. just a spice, hon. Chill. Yeah. It's spices. I'm just wondering if, like, she wasn't so focused on doing things the right way from her standpoint, would some of his behaviors or some of these things that she overlooked as well go on to see if she would have felt differently about those things, if she wasn't so focused on that with herself. Now, being paranoid as I am, if he was snooping around her apartment, did he already know she had garlic? I don't know. I think they went to the grocery store that night to get a few things. But who knows? And she had it. She mm. might have known. I don't know. I don't know. That's a premeditated, manipulative behavior right there. Mm. <laughs> I can't help wondering if he's, you know, setting her up already. I, I is, it, is it just spontaneous? Or is he already manipulating? I just don't, I don't trust know. the man. But she did. That doesn't seem to be the spontaneous type to me. But we'll see as the story unfolds. Right. So that weekend... Liz decides to go to Vancouver with Ted after he asked her to go. They have an absolutely wonderful time together in the large city. He treats her to a lavish meal at the Hotel Vancouver and a night out on the town. They go dancing. They make love for the first time. Liz said it's absolutely perfect. Ted tells her about a woman named Susan, who's an ex-girlfriend whom he followed to California. But she had a life of her own, and he didn't fit in with her because of her wealth, which is why it eventually fizzled out. This obviously came as a surprise for Liz, especially as she felt that he seemed so at ease in the elitist environment in which they found themselves in Vancouver. And upon returning, they pick up Molly from where she was staying. Ted actually shows Liz and Molly his apartment in Seattle. And it fits Ted. It's spotless. It's that old world charm. So he's kind of giving off this sense of, not I'm better than you, but he dresses very nicely. He has this air about him that she thinks that he has money. And I don't know if that kind of lends into her idea of he's going to take care of me. It very well could. Uh, probably does. Yeah. That's how I would interpret it, that he's mm-hmm. in a good place. Especially taking her out, spending all this money on this weekend together in Vancouver, which I know is definitely not a, a cheap city. No. But from then on, Liz and Ted became fairly inseparable. He seemed very hungry for a family life, and he wanted to lead, which is exactly what Liz had always wanted, so she went along willingly. And he told her, It's as if we knew each other before in some former life. We fit together so well in so many ways. We fill in all the gaps for each other. I look back on my life before I met you, and it seems it was terribly empty. I love you more than you know. Yeah, I'd totally be in. (laughs) I'd be in. I mean, that you're in that puppy love. Remember that first flush of love, where you're just lovesick at each other? Mm-hmm. I'd be into it. I, I'm and not kidding you. I'd be like, yeah, hook, line, sinker. Yep, you got me. That's great. Especially in the age of Twilight, where everyone fell in love with Edward Cullen. 
Oh my gosh, yes. Stuff that literally gets to all the young girls. Yeah. Well, Liz continues in her story. She recounts the first time she met Ted's parents. Isn't that always nerve-wracking? Well, she was nervous, just like anybody else would be. Based on what she knew of Ted, she expected them to be rich. And upon meeting them, she realized that her family was more prosperous than Ted's. He had four younger brothers and sisters who all lived at home, and she hit it off more with his father, Johnny, than she did with Ted's mother, Louise, who was friendly, but she's more formal in her way she presents. I know the type. Yep. He confessed to her that that weekend he didn't have a lot of money, and the reason that he had looked sad the night when they met is because he had run out of money for beer. <laughs> he also spent most of the remaining money he had on taking Liz out to dinner. And they they laughed about it since they had both embellished the truth that night. And and she had no problem covering for him in the interim because Ted was going to be successful, right? He was going to law school, and it would all come out in the wash. He just seemed destined for greatness. Right. I mean, I'm going to marry him. He's going to be a lawyer. We're going to have a wonderful life together. We fit together. We fill in niches in each other. It's going to be great. Uh, a few months later, at Christmas time, Ted met Liz's parents for the first time, and everybody hits it off immediately. Ted inserts himself into the kitchen with Liz's mom, and the two whipped up Christmas dinner together, kicking everyone else out of the kitchen. Liz observes that Ted seems to fit in wherever he goes. Uh However, Ted has one hang-up. He was born illegitimate, and he did not like it. He told Liz that his mother had given birth to him on the East Coast, and they ended up moving out to Tacoma to live with family, and then she ended up marrying Johnny, who later adopted him. Ted had known nothing about it until one of his cousins showed him his birth certificate one day. It was a mean, spiteful act on his cousin's part. Mm -hmm. That's terrible. I know, yeah. And he asked Liz if he should confront his mother about it, as he obviously held on to a lot of resentment on the issue. But Liz said no. She said, I'm sure it's a source of a lot of pain for her. And that's probably why she didn't talk about it. The second thing that bothered Ted was that his family was middle class. Mediocrity. Ted did not like mediocrity. He feared mediocrity. He wanted to be someone or something. And little did we know what he would actually become. Well, he succeeded at that, all right. Mm-hmm. So in January 1970, Liz and Ted found a nice duplex in North Seattle next to Green Lake. And it gave her so much more than the tiny one bedroom that she was currently living in. And she, Ted, and Molly were happy playing family. But it bothered Liz that they were not married. And she points out that they always talked about when they'd get married, but not actually getting married. And so they find that duplex, but he still keeps his apartment in Seattle. Yeah. We'll see. So, I mean, just based on that statement alone, we know marriage is important to Liz. And she wanted to call Ted her husband, but she didn't want him to know how important it was to her. And we'll, we'll see why. They even got the license to wed, but still the topic held heavy like the elephant in the room. Ted's mom that they should probably wait until he graduated. And of course, for delicate Liz, she wondered if Ted's mom felt that she wasn't good enough for her son and thinking that they should wait. The couple get into an argument about their impending nuptials when Liz asks to look at rings one day. So, I mean, they've talked about marriage now. Why not go look for a ring? Like, that's what people do when they're going to get married. Yeah, you get engaged. 
that Ted literally freaks out. What's the point in looking? We can't afford anything but a plain band. Hell, we probably can't even afford that. And the jabs just keep coming. Liz's parents were coming for a visit to Seattle, and she advised Ted that she thought it best that he remove his things from her closet so that they didn't think that they were living together before marriage. He tore up the marriage license right in front of her and said, if you're that hung up on what your parents think, then you're not ready to get married. Let's forget the whole thing. Mm. Liz has been married before. I mean, maybe she was young when she first got married, but she gets it. She knows what it is. This is not something to be taken lightly for her. No. She dropped the topic for the time being, but we see Liz's general self-esteem, self-worth during this time that she wrote. It just, it really makes me sad. And she felt that the arguments they were having about marriage were her fault, that she should consider his feelings more because he was going to law school and probably didn't want to start a family just yet. She needed him to take the lead and be the breadwinner. And that's just how it was supposed to be. And he was supposed to become that successful lawyer to take care of them all. You know, this just breaks my heart. I mean, I want to tell her, you know, stand up for yourself. Say what you want. It's important to you. Speak up. But the flip side is that I know the future. We know the future. And I'm really, really glad they didn't get married. But I'm just so painfully aware of how she tears herself apart. Uh And we have to be careful of this 2020 hindsight. It's not going to help us in understanding her story and how it unfolds. She does not know the future. You know, and this is 1970. Uh Nothing criminal has happened in 1970. Yeah. That we we know of. Exactly. And she still thinks this is her prince, perfect man for me. Yeah. Despite these little blow-ups, which we all know that couples get in a spat, so she probably thinks some of these things might be normal. Who knows? This is a big deal. You you don't just lightly run out and get married. Marry in haste, repent in leisure. Is that the saying? I think it is. (laughs) So Ted actually plans to start law school the winter uh, quarter of 1970. He actually really hasn't started law school yet. But by the spring of 1971, there's still no word about him actually starting up. And he said that there's a problem with his transcripts from Temple. Liz wanted to help. She calls admissions at Temple herself. And they tell her, you know, all law school students start at the beginning of fall quarter. There are no exceptions. Huh. There wasn't a problem with the transcript. Ted had lied to her. She was furious. So. Yeah. And he has an explanation for everything. He's like, well, I still have two years of undergraduate work left. I can understand if you can't live with it. His calmness made her feel like a raving lunatic. Again, Liz, come on. She reasons with herself that it's her fault that he couldn't be honest with her. She had made such a big deal out of this, and he couldn't even tell her the truth. And if you haven't heard the term, gaslighting, it's a psychological tactic used to gain control over another individual. It can occur in varying degrees and start off very small and insidious, just as we've already seen. You won't even realize it's happening, but essentially, your overreaction to what was said is just that, an overreaction. What was said really wasn't that bad. I didn't even say that. Jill, why are you overreacting? Why? Why? Yeah. He also has a theft problem, too. He stole textbooks. And Liz thought that this was very strange and out of character for someone who would want to be a law student. A definite risk for sure. And this definitely wasn't the first time that he would steal. But I would steal textbooks too. Those things are damn expensive. (laughs) And apparently everyone was doing it according to Ted. I'm not sure everybody was doing it. But um, honest people weren't. 
weren't doing it. Honesty just wasn't one of his qualities. I know. I remember spending like $300 on textbooks and then I was the unfortunate employee at the bookstore in college when people would go return them for money. Yeah. I had someone throw like a chemistry book at me one time. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, we're peers. I'm a college student. You're a college student. Just because I work in the bookstore doesn't mean I get my books for free. I'm sorry they came out with a new edition of your chemistry book, but I can't take it back, nor can I give you money. I was taking an anthropology class one time, and we had gotten our books. We were into the course, and the professor decided he didn't like the book, and he made us get another book. Oh, shit. And then he was told he couldn't do that, so he had to go back to the original book. So I... And then I couldn't get the original book that I had already highlighted and written in and whatever. Uh, couldn't find. It was a freaking nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, he was crazy. Some of them are crazy. So here's poor Liz being gaslighted. She's slowly being reeled in. She's enveloped in his web. She is spun around and around. And you can see this as she is unrolling her story. Totally. By March of 1971, she's starting to get antsy about marriage again. And in an effort to push Ted to commit, she says to him that, you know, we should date other people because we don't have a commitment to each other. And this is really just to kind of get a rise out of him. Only I can imagine saying this to my boyfriend right now. We've been together for almost seven years now. Let's see other people because we really don't have a commitment to each other. Well, when she says this to Ted, instead of fighting with her on this, he says... Oh, all right. Well, sure. Okay. If that's what you want, you know, if that's what you want. And she's furious. To hell with you then, Ted. Uh, She calls her friend Angie and she gets Angie to set her up on a date with one of her boyfriend's friends. They do go out and it is just painfully obvious she's not having a good time. Oh, yeah, absolutely. She's pissed. Right. She is. She's hurt that he won't commit. She comes up with this idea to push him. And it doesn't work. And here she's on a date with somebody she really doesn't want to be on. And worse, Ted shows up to the restaurant that they're all at. And she ends up going home with Ted. I mean, how incredibly awkward. Awkward, yes. And when they get back home, they get into an argument and he starts pleading for another chance. And he says, I want to spend my whole life with you. And when we're 85... We'll laugh and tell our grandchildren about the night Grandpa followed Grandma out on her date. Now, just stop and envision this. Is this the big gesture that Liz wanted? Him to show up, groveling, and announce that she is his? You're you're mine, and I love you, and we're going to be... It could be, but there's still no ring attached to this. Just a lot of words and grandstanding. I was just feeding her hopes and dreams and giving her that little piece to hold on to. But I think it was just enough for her to hold on to it. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So, 1971 drags on without much further incident. Molly turns five in May. And in July, Ted helps Liz find a two-bedroom apartment in the university district, which is closer to his own apartment, which, again, he is still keeping. Mm-hmm. Their pattern of life, though, begins to change. Funny when she moves closer that it begins to change. Mm-hmm. He stops spending the night with her and goes home late at times and instead of staying over. They would eat dinner together and sometimes he just wouldn't show up. 
or he would show up when she wasn't expecting him. They, yeah, they're they're just not on the same page, which they had been at one point. Ted does really shitty on his LSATs, the lawyer exams that he has to take to, uh, to get LSAT, to law school. Yeah. yeah, the LSAT. He retakes it, and guess what? The score comes back the same, and he Sounds is like my F- just yeah. Well, he's devastated. I mean, yeah, the LSATs. Yeah, remember, he despises mediocrity. You know, he's Ted. He's supposed he's to be. Great great he's supposed to be outstanding but what this proves to me is that ted is portrayed as this you know brilliant evil genius he's not a brilliant evil genius he's not you know exactly if he puts his mind to it he can do well in school but that's about it he's no genius he is no genius now in early 1972 liz stops taking her birth control on the advice of her doctor and what follows is she gets pregnant And Ted is really pleased with himself, but this is not the time for a child, so they decide to have an abortion. Ted has to go to law school. He has applied to six schools. He gets accepted to the University of Utah, and it's the first acceptance that he receives. And being cocky and arrogant, he declines only to be rejected by the rest. Karma's a bitch. Yeah, what an ass. All right, so he decides that a year's worth of work experience will do him good and that he'll just apply next year. Uh, just, what an ass. What? Mm-hmm. Just, what an ass. Exactly, and it's funny because I feel like even though her abortion only has like a couple paragraphs dedicated to it, like there's almost not any discussion. It's just like, Oh. Okay, this is what happened. Can't ignore the signs anymore. Have an abortion. Done. Yep. And the focus is, of course, all about his law school. Yes. Which he gets into. his career. And he completely blows it. Mm -hmm. uh, Because, again, oh, this wasn't a prestigious enough law school. So I'm just going to, oh, I'll get into something better. I'm Ted Bundy. Yeah. (laughs) All right. Well. In June of 72, Ted graduates from the University of Washington with honors. Oh, my God. He takes a full-time job. Can you imagine? For the summer, anyway, at the Harborview Hospital's Mental Health Center. Can you imagine him at a mental health center? No. Exactly. (laughs) But remember, he puts you at ease. You know, he's comfortable to talk with. He's got that mask of compassion and sympathy Uh and empathy that he can wear and sound that way, even though we know he's not. All right. So that 4th of July, Liz spends time with her family in Utah without Ted. And the week she's back, uh, Ted says, hey, you know, let's go out Friday night. But she declines. She's tired. She's been traveling. Now, the next day she feels better and she calls him to say that she has changed her mind. And, oh, uh, mm, uh, he hems, he haws, and eventually he tells her that he has a date with someone else. What? (laughs) What the hell? What? Since when do we have that kind of relationship? After, now after she hangs up, Liz screams, you asshole, you fucker, you made me kill my baby for you and your goddamn career, you miserable son of a bitch, Ted Bundy, I hate you. That is a good reaction. Yeah, it's honest. That is, I wish she would have said it. Yes. What if she actually said it to him? But she she yelled it into the air. 
in her apartment. And then this self-loathing and pitying kicks in. God, you're stupid, Liz. You're a goddamn stupid idiot. You're a goddamn ugly pig. What did you think he would do? Love and cherish you? He just used you and now he's through. Now, I am not going to criticize a woman who is clearly struggling in a very complicated relationship. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. With a man who is hiding huge dysfunctional aspects of himself from her, giving her no idea what is real and what's not and what is actually going on here. So this is like having half the puzzle pieces and being confused because you can't put the jigsaw puzzle together. Uh-huh. I mean, it's an impossible situation. My heart breaks for her. I said she really has no idea what's going on. She's a yo-yo. Yeah, and, and her drinking definitely seems to take a turn here. She drinks a whole bottle of scotch that night, and she falls asleep in the back of her closet. I mean, I've been in my closet only to record <laughs> one time, but I've never just decided to curl up in the back of my closet. So obviously, she's definitely going through something here. I mean, she's had a very traumatic couple of months, an abortion. She leaves to go away for a weekend to see her family. Next thing she know, her boyfriend has a date with another woman. But she wakes up, she dresses all in black, and gets a small butcher knife and puts it in her pocket, and she heads for Ted's. It, I don't see this as being a good idea. She mm-hmm. she agrees with me, and she decides to go home. Once she gets there, she drinks the beer that she has in the fridge, and she passes out again. So a bottle of scotch, probably a few beers, passes out. The next day, she gets up, she goes to Ted's, he's still not there, but she finds a note in his garbage from a girl named Marcy. Saw you out riding your bicycle in the sun, came by to visit, but you weren't here, you missed out. That would infuriate the shit out of me. Now, first she's digging through his garbage. Exactly. Okay. (laughs) She's digging through his garbage to find a note. Now, there's a little desperation going on here, Uh but it would infuriate me too. And obviously she is hysterical, and this is what Ted comes home to find, a hysterical Liz. They argue, she screams, she runs out of the apartment, he follows her, she makes all the way back to her apartment since they don't live too far away from each other now. He's banging on the bathroom door trying to get her to come out, and she's like, nope, call Angie. Angie comes over, Ted's dismissed. And then Liz just spends the next few days with her friend Angie, just drinking, crying. Talking about all the things that happen when you discover that your prince isn't such a prince charming after all. She went on a bender. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And you know, just as he's done before, that conniving jerk calls her and says, I'm sorry for what I've done. I love you so much. <sighs> Being with someone else was the loneliest experience of my life. I don't know why I jeopardized everything. Me, me, me. Maybe. I, I, I. <laughs> Maybe if you, oh, we have a you there, Jill. Maybe if you are willing, if you can forgive me, maybe we could start over. Because I was lonely. I had a bad experience. I just puked in my mouth. Oh, God. (laughs) I I don't know how many times she's going to take this speech before she finally gets it, but he, (sighs) I mean, he can sense, like, her own self-loathing and lack of confidence, and he feeds into that, manipulating her, controlling her, and... Liz comes back to him and believes for a short while that things would be okay, that they would go back to normal, but they never really did. Listen, he likes this kind of Liz. He likes this confused, walking on eggshells, questioning herself, being uncertain, second-guessing. When he 
needs her to go play stable family, to feel normal, to be the father figure to Molly. When he wants to do family time, she's great. And he needs that. Uh So his needs have to be met. But then he goes on to, you know, live his other lives and do whatever else he wants to do. It just drives me crazy. So in the spring of 1973, after all this, flash forward a little bit, Ted began working at the King County Budget Office. And this was a job he received after a brief stint at the Seattle Crime Commission doing a study on white-collar crime. Mm -hmm. Go figure. He buys his Volkswagen, the infamous tan one, and he was also appointed to assistant chairman of the Washington State Republican Central Committee, political career aspirations. And he continues to steal, much to Liz's dismay. She notes a time here that she saw him at a hardware store putting tools into a tool chest, and she literally goes, you know, steal that whole thing? Says no. But then she sees the exact same tool chest in his car days later. And this time, she doesn't say a damn word. She's had enough. Yeah. Why bother? Exactly. So Liz does make some changes here. She begins sailing with a man named Greg, and she starts to crew for him. Thanks for Liz. Yes. Like I said, she does make some changes in her life. Very strong move on her part. Now, this is a platonic relationship, but she really does enjoy the idea of making Ted jealous. Oh, for sure. Yeah. Well, why not? Obviously, we know how she feels in terms of always putting herself down, and we know that started even before Ted. And we see some of these little spats that they have when yes. he rips up the marriage license in front of her. He doesn't really, like, call her out, per se, but it's more of that manipulativeness and gaslighting, where right. he knows what he's doing, but he doesn't necessarily say, like, you're an awful goddamn human being. Right. She comments that every time she tries to speak with him about their relationship, she's insecure. She's too clingy. Does he say these things to her? I don't know. But but when she tells him that she's going sailing with Greg, he tells her, wow, you're taking a really big chance in our relationship. But you After could ruin everything. Woman? Right. She's platonically sailing with a friend. And he's going on dates, but Liz is the one that's taking a big chance and going to ruin their relationship. So anyway, after the trip she takes with Greg, she receives a letter. He loves writing freaking letters. Oh, he does. And this is not going to be the last letter by any means. But he eloquently, very, very eloquently describes his love for her and how he wants to be with her forever. Forever. And of course, what does Liz do? She tells Greg she can't see him anymore. Oh, of course. So he, Ted completely manipulates her. There is no room in this world of his for a Greg. And there's no room for Liz to have friends like Greg. And she cannot go out and do independent activities that she might barely be good at without Ted. Because she might actually build self-esteem and have fun and build confidence. And then Liz might actually think for herself And then think that her own ideas have merit, and she might start to think that she's competent. So, oh, so this Greg guy, he has to go, and he makes that happen. And that's Ted. That's vintage Ted. And as uh, we move along in 1973, Liz notes that her dependency on Ted bothered him, even though this is what he was trying to create. Remember, she felt he should be taking the lead in the relationship. Yep. So, 
she decides to get involved in things again, just like the crewing, even more. She takes up skiing again. She starts going back to church. They even start to play chess together. Obviously, chess is an intellectual game. Especially when you start to become good at it, you always have to think however many moves ahead. And, you know, they each end up buying each other a hand-carved chess set for Christmas that year. That must have been funny. Oh, absolutely. I mean, who would have thought giving each other the same exact gifts? Right. And so they actually didn't spend Christmas together that year. Liz and Molly went to Utah for Christmas just like they did every year. And she didn't even really know what to tell her parents about their relationship at that time. They never really lived together. They see each other sporadically. They talk on the phone all the time. They're, they're not on the same page anymore, and Liz understands that. But when she returned and she sees Ted for the first time, he has a lot of new presents for himself. A bright red parka, an on-brand ski sweater, or a new antique clock. They're presents from his mom. Sure. Liz knows that Reese is on a tight budget, and it just didn't seem right. Did you steal anything lately, Ted? She was so incensed by her question that she almost believed him when he said that he did not steal these things. Oh, he's lying through his teeth. Oh, absolutely. She should have totally called him out. So now we're getting to 1974, and we know this is a big year. Oh, yeah. So in January, right at the start of the year, it starts off with a young woman being attacked while sleeping in the University District in Seattle. This is the neighborhood where both Ted and Liz reside. This poor young woman, she's raped, she's beaten, and left for dead, basically. And nobody heard a thing. No one. They didn't even find her until the next day. This could have been Ted's first attack, and there's great proof of that. And the woman who was attacked, her name was Karen Sparks Epley, and she spoke on one of the episodes of Falling for a Killer, and I think, Jill, she's done other interviews, mm-hmm. which we'll touch more on in second cast. But I think it's quite safe to say that Liz had no idea when she wrote this book that this crime was attributed to Ted or could have been. So from Liz's point of view, this is a brutal attack on a young woman in her neighborhood. And not to make Karen's play any less of what it was, but to Liz, because she survived, she never made that connection to Ted until recently. Yeah, definitely not. Later that month on the 31st, Linda Ann Healy, who was a University of Washington student, she disappeared from her own bedroom in the basement of a house not far from Liz's own. Her roommates woke up to the sound of her alarm going off with no one in the room to turn it off. And upon police inspection, they find blood on her pillow, on her bed, and blood on her nightgown. Weird fact, the nightgown is found hung up in the closet. So someone spent time with her, took her nightgown off, put her in new clothes, and took her out of there. And we know that this is definitely going to be Ted's first admitted kill. But there's plenty of evidence to suspect that this might not have been his first kill, especially when he was a teenager. There was a young girl who was kidnapped and killed, and he was thought to be a suspect. So he's out on the East Coast. There could be a lot more other things that we don't know about since we only know West Coast, Ted. Very true. Yep. Girls disappeared in uh, New Jersey. Mm-hmm. Had been visiting down at the beach. It wasn't the Jersey Devil, that's for sure. Definitely not. All right. Well... This is just the beginning. These disappearances do not stop. In February, a little girl goes missing from a front yard in south of the university district. In June, Georgianne Hawkins disappears walking home from her boyfriend's frat house, just three blocks south of Liz's place. That's close. Yeah. Liz is obviously distraught by the disappearances of young women in her own neighborhood. 
not only for herself, but for Molly as well. Especially and, with that little girl. Yeah. Every mother's protective of their child, right? Or should mm-hmm. be. She's also upset over the fact that she and Ted weren't getting along anymore. In hindsight, this would be because he had taken his murderous urges to the next level by routine picking up and murdering women, do you think? Maybe that's going on here? Now, Ted was taking classes at the University of Puget Sound, and he was upset because he wasn't doing as well as he'd hoped. Huh. So, we know he was upset earlier. He did shitty on his all set. He's obviously very smart, but he doesn't have the concentration to do this. We see he's escalating, obviously, here. We know that, but she doesn't. Nobody knows that. But did Ted have, like, ADD or ADHD? I don't know. I sure wonder. Or is he just has his concentration on his murderous urge and giving into that and satisfying that side of himself? Yeah. I mean, unfortunately, we won't know because he died. Just when we thought he talked enough because, no, we read that Riverman book. Yeah. He talked a lot. Well, what we do know is that Ted is not the genius that some make him out to be. A master manipulator? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Uh, Brilliant genius? No. Not at all. He didn't look good at this point. Liz is using the term haggard. He wanted to drop out. He's lacking concentration to get through his classes, and he doesn't know why. Well, I think he does know why. He's just not sharing. (laughs) Liz says that being a lawyer meant everything to him, but he was terribly afraid he wasn't going to make it. Well, again, that mediocrity, he can't Mm -hmm. be, he can't, he, he, that's not who he is. Um, We did read in The Riverman uh, in our book club, and um, this is about how Ted helped the FBI catch the Green River killer, Gary Ridgway. And helped is in quotes. Uh, Because they already had a suspect, but they more or less wanted to understand how a killer such as Ted operates, and if he could essentially give pointers into the minds of others like him. Uh, Most of all, they wanted him to confess to more murders before he was put to death. Ted talks to uh, Robert Keppel a lot in that book. Too much, actually. Yeah, I thought Uh, the book was about Ted Bundy and not Gary Ridgway. For a long time. But what we do learn about Ted is that after a murder, he went into something akin to panic mode, where he went about trying to get rid of everything that could associate him back to the crime. He was almost sloppy in that aspect, throwing things out windows as he left the dump site. However, he would spend hours backtracking, looking for those pieces of evidence to cover his tracks again. So we know Ted is smart, cunning, and calculating. But after the murder, it was almost like that force drove him to kill, would melt away, leaving a scared, cowardly man afraid of being caught. Well, shouldn't have been doing it in the first place. And Liz, she had no idea that he was feeling this way until he started talking to her about it and suggested that maybe a change of scenery would possibly help or some kind of change in general, like perhaps reapplying back to the University of Utah, who had accepted him, but that he ultimately rejected. He did. He was accepted and announced that he's moving to Salt Lake City. Liz, as we know, she couldn't stand not knowing what was going to happen to them as a couple, as this was another thing that Ted refused to acknowledge or address. She asked, am I going or am I staying? And he said, typical Ted, it's up to you. You can come if you want. His response, like many others, left her angry and upset because he could not give her a definitive answer. Remember, 
she needed him to take direction. She wanted him to take charge and tell her what the three of them, including Molly, were going to do. He wanted him, she wanted him to say he wouldn't go there without her, that she had value to him. But he never really said anything about it. No, he just didn't. He couldn't. He dumped it on her. You know, he wanted to hear, I love you. Of course you're coming with me. We're going to be together. We're a family. He didn't say that. Nope. He wouldn't say that until he thought that she was, he was going to lose her. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he would only say enough to reel her back in. And then he'd write her a letter. A nice heartfelt letter because he couldn't use the actual words. <sighs> in June, uh, a few months before Ted was getting ready to leave, he began working for the State Department of Emergency Services in Olympia, which was two hours away from Seattle. So he spent time at his parents' place in Tacoma or his place in Seattle, but the time with Liz grew shorter. They would still talk on the phone almost every day. And he would stay with her a couple of nights a week, but after dinner, he would rarely stay the night anymore. And obviously, Liz is hurt. She feels undesired. He didn't want to make love anymore. And we know Ted wasn't faithful by any means, but Liz wanted to know what the other woman was like. Those were the thoughts going through her head. And so she felt, oh, if I could just be more like her, then maybe he'll want me. But if she were more like the perceived woman in her mind, she might be dead, because that's really what he was doing. I uh, I feel so bad for her. I really I do. do. This whole book, it was frustrating and, you know, it's heartbreaking at the same time. Like, you just feel so bad for her, especially during this tumultuous time of women gaining their independence from the patriarchy, basically. Like, yeah. she's still struggling of what is a perceived notion versus what women want to do. Yeah. And so that 4th of July weekend, this is a turning point for Liz. Molly's at Liz's parents for a month. She seemed to be spending a lot of time in Utah with the grandparents. Probably a good thing. Yeah, and so Liz and Ted have some time alone together. They decide to go rafting on the Yakima River. And during that trip down the Lazy River, Liz is sitting on the edge of the raft, just enjoying the peace and quiet when out of nowhere, Ted just shoves her off the raft and into the cold water. And this this is extremely vivid memory for Liz. I'm sure it was probably freaking freezing because she felt attacked. And she remembered Ted's eyes. And she said his face had gone blank as though he was not there at all. I had a sense that he wasn't seeing me. He didn't move. He didn't speak. I could find no expression on his face. And judging by the times that this had happened and what we will ultimately see with Molly once we get to her story, this is most likely the face that most of his victims saw as they were taking their last breath. This, the mask is off. Yeah. This is his real face. It's slipped. Yeah, she's seeing his real face here. He obviously knows that this is awkward because it's not like he just breaks completely out of this, this trance-like state, but he just kind of, like, looks over her shoulders like, geez, can't, can't you take a joke? Here she yelled at him. Yes. Yeah, she was really pissed and yelled at him. Finally. I know, finally she stood up for him. I mean, still they're alone, so I'm glad nothing happened as a result of her freaking out on him, but rule number one, don't kill someone you know. Yeah, well... Timing is always significant. On July 7th, after roaring off the night before, Ted came around the next day with all of their stuff still in the car from the previous day. And he says he's gone out to Lake Sammamish, east of the city, to spend some time on his own. He didn't apologize to Liz for what he had done, and she's still really angry with him. I would be. Yeah. So he unloads the car and left. Now, by July 17th, There's a headline in the paper telling of two young women who had disappeared from Lake Sammamish the same day Ted had been there. 
Denise Nasland and Janice Ott reminded Liz of the women who had disappeared in the university district. Out of 40,000 people who had been there that day, witnesses reported Janice was talking to a man with a sling. He was described as a smooth talker, possibly with a British accent, wore expensive-looking tennis clothes, and had asked for help putting his sailboat on his roof rack. The man introduced himself as Ted, and he drove a bronze or metallic-covered VW Bug. Newspapers were full of speculation that the Lake Sammamish disappearances possibly being connected to those in the university district. Yet there were still more disappearances in the Northwest that just might be connected. March 12th, Donna Mason of Evergreen State College in Olympia, which is about two hours from Seattle. April 17th, Susan Rancor of Central Washington State College in Ellensburg, again, two hours from Seattle. May 6th, Roberta Kathleen Parks of Oregon State University on Corvallis, 230 miles south of Seattle. That was a drive. Uh, yeah, that is. Yeah. June 1st, Brenda Ball disappeared from the Flame Tavern in South Seattle. You know, no wonder Ted was doing poorly in school. He's too busy driving all over the place and spreading out. This is, what did we talk about with the Golden State Killer marauding versus commuting mm-hmm. and then setting up a buffer zone? Yeah. Obviously, his buffer zone, he moved Liz into his buffer zone, but was killing very close to where she was. But then he's also commuting and spreading out. Absolutely. The geographic profile stands. Mm-hmm. The Seattle Post-Intelligencer released a police sketch of this Ted, and it didn't look like anyone she'd ever seen in her life, especially not her Ted. So Ted was getting closer to going to Utah. Liz said, in the years we've been together, which is roughly five at this point, he had become even more polished, even more sophisticated, moving through the world as though it belonged to him. I hadn't changed. I was going to get left behind. So Liz has lunch with a male colleague who slides her a newspaper clipping from the Seattle Times. And this was about July 22nd, 1974. He says, I think that looks like someone you know. She looks at it. Did look vaguely like Ted, but she was quick to say that his VW bug was not metallic. It's her only defense at this point. But, you know, something, something didn't feel right. And this was, she's seen sketches of this Ted before, but this one was different. So she gets home, she pulls out photo after photo of Ted, comparing it to this sketch. The jawline, the laugh lines, the quality of the eyes. Those were all Ted, but the hair, that was wrong. The sketch personage had straight hair. Ted's was curly. Who cares about hair at this point? A lot of it is the same, but a little bit is different. Yeah. But Liz goes to Angie to chat about all this, and she describes how the clipping has started to affect her. She lists the coincidences, the accent. She had said previously that the way that Ted spoke almost was British in nature. I think she talked about it when they first met, and obviously when, when you were saying how in the newspaper article who Janice was talking to, they described him as having a British accent. So some of these coincidences are just popping up more and more. Mm-hmm. So. The expensive clothes, the name Ted, the Volkswagen, the cast, all of it. Angie's like, what do you, what do you mean the cast? Well, yeah. well, this is the first time we're hearing about this, which is one of those things throughout the book. I would say the first third of the book is almost like, these are the good times with my prince, my, my prince charming. Ted is wonderful. But then she starts interspersing 
when she starts getting these hunches and that gut feeling that something's not quite right, that we start learning more and more. And it's like, girl, what the heck? Like Red flags. Red flags. So this is one of those first ones. So Liz, there's not a lot. I feel like there's not a lot of trust in the relationship either. She goes snooping around Ted's desk drawers at his apartment one day while he's taking a bath. And she found some plaster of Paris tucked away at the back of a drawer. And she asked him about it. She admits to her snooping. Okay, cool. But he said he'd taken it from a medical supply store and he didn't know why. Again, stealing. But now she could only think about how a hard plaster arm cast would be the perfect weapon to bludgeon someone unconscious. Just like those poor missing girls from Lake Sammamish. And she said, it's not so much the name or the car or the cast. It's this dreadful feeling I can't shake. I know it can't be true, but it hit me like a ton of bricks. And when I saw the picture, I can't figure it out. can't think. I feel like my head's on backwards. Yeah, that's a horrible thing to start connect those dots and put two and two together. Oh my god, I can only... And, and we'll see as we go through how conflicted she is. But her and Angie concoct this plan to call the TED hotline that had been set up by the police, and they're going to do it anonymously. So they drive out to a payphone. Angie calls first. She asks to confirm the color of the VW. Yes, it's metallic. Did he have a cold? No reports of a cold. We know that Liz had talked about having a cold that day, but she forgot to ask about a watch. They had concocted these questions, but obviously Angie's nervous. She forgets to ask one question. And Liz felt that this was an important question to ask. Ted was left-handed. Most people are right-handed, so left-handed, and he always wore a watch on his right wrist. Liz gets up the nerve to call the hotline herself. No one had reported this Ted wearing a wristwatch. And although they had called the police, she still didn't feel relieved. So they go to the library, and they end up reading everything that they could from the newspapers to try to allay Liz's fears. To Liz, the differences in Ted versus Burr Ted were reassuring enough to put some of that fear and doubt aside. So she's like, you know what? I need to go see him. I just just need to see him. So she goes to his place just to make sure it's still the Ted that she knows. And while she's there, she notices a pair of crutches by the door and a very large knife on his desk. Uh-huh. Master, mm-hmm. master of excuses, Ted said, oh, you know, crutches belong to his landlady and he's going to return them for her. And the knife, that was, he cut vegetables a certain way. He shows her off how to cut vegetables with his knife. The idea of a random knife sitting on your desk at home? Crutches? I, I always keep my knives not in my kitchen. Yeah, you know. Yeah. Wayne, uh, Wayne Nance with his handmade knife collection over here. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And although these random occurrences were adding up, Liz still felt doubtful that her Ted would be a killer. But one of the things that she couldn't shake was that he had gone to Lake Sammamish. He'd never been there as far as she knew, and they definitely had never been there together. Well, he was also insistent on knowing where she was going to be that day, because mm-hmm. she was supposed to go out and, you know, didn't want Liz running around it. Lake Sammamish either. Oh, of course. Yeah. So, anyway, Ted is now getting ready to start law school in uh, Salt Lake City, and Liz had gone to visit her parents and agreed to find an apartment for him while she was out there. And she did find one that she knew he would like, because she's a good person and she's really considerate, and that was really, really nice of her. However, she was in for a surprise when she landed at the airport when she got back. Ted had cut all his hair off. It changed his appearance dramatically. 
And he did it because he, uh, you know, decided to. You know, was, uh, you think he was starting to feel the heat with those oh, pictures going around, the sketches? Oh, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, long hair usually for uh, some guys tends to start getting curly when it grows out a little bit. Mm, yeah. So, those sketches might be coming too close. Yeah. Well, that weekend, uh, Liz, Ted, and Molly had a picnic together, and Ted was out in the raft rowing with Molly swimming behind it, and he stayed so far ahead of her that Molly finally gave out out of fear and exhaustion and wound up swimming back to shore. Liz was furious, and as always, Ted made her feel like she was overreacting. Just because your baby, just because you baby her doesn't mean everyone else should. Because, you know, this was clearly Liz's fault. Oh, yes. You know, he wasn't acting like an ass again. Mm-hmm. It was all Liz. Getting back into the car, Liz felt under the seat to find one of Molly's socks. And instead of a sock, she found a hatchet. Huh. Now, he explains this away as having to cut down uh, a tree at his parents' house. And, uh, <laughs> well, oh, always the excuse maker. Yep. Random weapons. All over the place. Yeah, yeah. You know, just knives laying around, hatchets, you know, under seats. Liz says she felt safe with her family in Utah, but as soon as she got off the plane, it was there again. She knew deep down that Ted would never hurt her or Molly. Not in that way, but she was afraid that he would find out what she had done to him by calling the police. I have a problem with this, but we, we know how Liz feels. She's not concerned with him hurting them, but more concerned with her finding out that if he were to get in trouble, it was her fault. Right. Now, in the book, she cuts back to the present, thinking over her years with Ted, as if trying to find what she could possibly have overlooked in their time together. Although he was more or less a jerk to her, she could only count a handful of times when he had lost his temper. One of those times was when she and Molly stopped by his Seattle apartment and it had been refurnished with brand new electronics, a typewriter, and she knew he didn't have the money and accused him of stealing. He was always stealing. But on this occasion, he snatched her arm, squeezed it tight and said, if you ever tell anyone about this, I'll break your fucking neck. I'm sorry. He almost stole the whole apartment. He literally stole a whole apartment, basically. Yeah. I mean, yeah. On top of all this other stealings, I mean, this should have been a big red flag. She knows this. Yeah. Now, Liz goes over the list of gifts that Ted had given her, and she wondered if most of them were stolen. And to her, it isn't about the actual morality of the stealing, but it was the fact he might get caught and end a career that hadn't even begun yet. So we don't care that he's stealing, but that he might end his career and not be able to be the man that she wants him to be. It's more or less the idea of the man, I think, at this point in time. And, you know, we've had discussions about this, like how nice it was the first few months that they were together. And she's been trying to capture that. I think she has an idealized Ted self Mm -hmm. that she's holding this image in her mind versus the actual reality of Ted, and they're very much in conflict. Oh, definitely. Very much, and painfully in conflict. So before leaving for Utah, Liz and Ted have the us discussion where they assured each other that they would stay together despite the difference. But Liz wondered, and she says, 
I suspected that we were saying these things to each other because neither of us was willing to face the truth, that Ted was bored with me, that I was socially inadequate for the political circles he traveled in, that he would soon be looking for someone new. However, just when she allowed herself to stop thinking these thoughts and that Ted could somehow be connected to the Ted disappearances, something would trigger her fears that he might be responsible. If something were a little bit different, he would be responsible. And all of this, it was just everywhere. Newspapers, radio, television. She just couldn't stop thinking about this. And on August 8th, a newspaper released a story entitled UW Coed's Encounter with a Man Like Ted. And a young woman describes walking home alone at night. She encounters a man on crutches, carrying a briefcase, appealing to her sense of helpfulness. She asks if she can help out, and she does but advises that she's going into her boyfriend's house and she can't go any further. Later that night, that was when George Ann Hawkins disappeared. Liz calls the police again. She's worried about her boyfriend, Ted, and that he could be the Ted. He matched the description, sort of, and she saw crutches in his room that couldn't be explained. Some things fit and some things don't. Again, Liz's drinking starts to escalate. She spends her nights drinking to quiet her mind. This is the only way that she can relax now. And she begins to look forward to him leaving, believe it or not. And that maybe when he does, these thoughts will leave her. What do we always say, Joe? Trust your gut. Yes. And however, while they're still spending time together, they're doing all of the things that they used to enjoy just as if it were for the last time. And, you know, around this time, he's getting ready to leave. Ted asks her to fill up the gas tank in his car one day. And that's when she finds, she's, she's snooping again, to be quite honest, but she finds a bunch of gas receipts in his visor and she decides to search his room and she found more receipts. Nothing out of the ordinary, but it was so weird that there were so many of them, gas receipts. And she also found a film canister that was heavily wrapped up with electrician's tape. She wanted to take it, but she, she really didn't dare. She's like, nope, nope, not going to do that. She had a really bad feeling about that film canister. And there was also an eyeglass case filled with all these different kinds of keys. And what were these for? Well, she was like, you know what? I'm getting out of here before he comes back. She takes some of his canceled checks and receipts, and she gets the heck out of there. And then after that, Ted leaves for Utah. Listen, if you have the urge to search through and snoop your other's personal belongings, there's something wrong. Oh, yes. Okay, but... <laughs> That's a red mountain. It's not a red flag. It's a red mountain. <laughs> it, it may be something wrong with you because you have this urge or something wrong with the other person because you're feeling the need to do that. Either way, figure it out. Okay, we know a mountain is immovable. Yeah. This is a, a red flag. mountain. <laughs> yes. Yes. Oh, boy. All right. So in mid-September 1974... The bodies of Denise Naslin and Janice Ott, the two women who had disappeared from Lake Sammamish, they're found in the woods not far from where they were last seen. Liz tells Ted about the discovery, hoping to elicit a reaction, but she doesn't get one. The next time she speaks to him over the phone, he asks if they've found more bodies. Excuse me? More more bodies? More bodies. And this scared the crap out of her. Why would they find more bodies? Are there more to be what looking you know, for, Ted? Ted? <laughs> now, Angie returns from a visit to Utah, and she meets up with Liz, and Angie tells Liz, 
I don't want to scare you, but it's happening in Utah right now. Meaning that bodies were being found just as they'd been found around Seattle. And Ted is now in Utah. Some local hunters had found the body of Melissa Smith, the daughter of the Midvale police chief. She had been missing just like the girls were up in Seattle. Newspapers would later say that the girls had been missing since October 18th. And that's the day before Liz's father's birthday in which Ted has spent the day hunting with him in Utah. It could have been Ted. And Liz knew that she had to go to the police again and explain that her Ted was now in Utah and the same thing was happening again. She's having nightmares about Ted finding out that she had contacted the police, possibly ruining his career and aspirations for what she had done. Not that he was or could be a murderer. Bizarre. I know we've already touched on this fact multiple times. And also, this was the most interesting part of the book, I guess the second third of this where she's connecting the dots and we start knowing that on these dates she can never pinpoint Ted's exact location. Yeah, he's always missing in action. Mm-hmm. He's always MIA. He's always late for something. Doesn't yep. show up. Mm-hmm. Can't get a hold of him. No. Now, when she contacts the police, she's going to speak with Randy Hergesheimer of the Kings County Police Station. And she tells him about her experience with the Seattle police. He drives a Volkswagen, but it's not metallic. He sometimes speaks in a very formal way, which could be mistaken for an accent. His name is Ted. There were crutches in his room. She's calling now because the same thing is happening in Utah. Hershenheimer tells Liz, there were more Ted's than you think. She relays that he was at Lake Shamamish on the weekend of July 7th that there's a composite picture that looks sort of like him, and that the two women who disappeared, they were from her own neighborhood. Hershenheimer asks Liz, is Ted short for Edward? No, no, for Theodore. He says to her, you don't mean Theodore R. Bundy. Liz is stunned. What? Stunned. Oh, we checked his name out last summer when one of the professors had called in, and she's like... Professor had called in. Yes. And Liz feels a bit relieved, which, yeah, I'd imagine I would feel. Uh And nevertheless, Hergesheimer says, hey, let's let's meet in person. And she agrees. Yeah. So they meet in a parking lot and they sit in his car to chat. And first thing that she tells him is he steals. This has always been one of those things that just made her very uncomfortable. And she says, I sometimes think that Ted enjoys the concept of stealing things more than the stuff he stole. And she tells him about the time he threatened to break her fucking neck after she found out he stole a bunch of electronics in a whole apartment. He wasn't violent, but yes, he had hit her before, just once, and ironically in that same parking lot that they are now sitting. <laughs> and what about his background? Was there anything there that would affect the way that he felt about women? Well, he was illegitimate, and that upset him. Hergesheimer then asked about their sex life. How often? What positions? When? Where? All sorts of questions. Did they know something that Liz didn't? Obviously, for the times, these were not questions that a young woman felt comfortable being asked, especially for Liz, who was a Mormon and who knew she was living in sin. She tells him they had a good sex life up until the summer of 1974. However, again, these little nuggets keep Falling into place, Mm -hmm. there was a time in the fall of 1973 where Ted asked her to try bondage. They tried a few times, but Liz didn't like it, so they stopped. Ted never brought it back up. 
had he had any homosexual experiences. No, but Kaz started talking about anal sex, and it, I guess it started to make her wonder. Oh and as, as we continue reading, Liz starts to talk more and more about her anxiety and fears to the police. We start to understand that her perfect prince was, in fact, not so perfect. Their life together wasn't as grand as she pretended it to be. He was unfaithful, often uncaring of her feelings. He hit her. This was a result of them drinking too much. She definitely was drinking a lot during their time together, which often caused these arguments with one another. And Liz was getting to the point where she drank to become numb. She now drank just so that she could go to sleep at night. Liz goes on to give Hergesheimer some recent photos of Ted, and he tells her he's going to show some witnesses to see if they can be ID'd as that Ted. She finally hears back. There's no positive ID, so Ted's file is going to be put under the checked it twice column and be filed away. So he's been checked out multiple times. There's no connection made. Well, he has no criminal record. Mm-hmm. He's not driving a metallic bronze VW. Yeah, Weird coincidences. But there's a lot of Ted's out there. Yeah. So on November 8th, Carol Durange was abducted from a shopping mall by a man posing as a police officer. She escaped from the VW bug that she was forcibly put into as he was trying to handcuff her. The man had also tried to hit her with a crowbar, but again, she managed to get away. The Durange attempted abduction was in Salt Lake. And later that night, a girl from a high school in Bountiful, Utah, Debbie Kent disappeared roughly 30 miles away. A key found at the scene matched the handcuffs at the attempted abduction site of Carol DeRange. It was the same guy. This was the same day that Liz had tried to call Ted, but couldn't get in touch with him. He called her back later that night at 11 p.m., but she was too tired to kind of talk to him, but he sounded a little bit funky. And Liz goes to see her Mormon bishop for guidance. She still can't shake this feeling. She felt that even though the police had already looked into Ted, there was still something about everything, everything that didn't feel right. And she says, I'm trying to do what's right. I thought I had to go to the police, but when they told me I was wrong, I was still scared. And our bishop calls the police again for her, and still nothing happens because they'd already looked at him multiple times. You know, I just cannot imagine the sustained agony of this uncertainty when women are going missing and dying. Mm-hmm. Liz is doing the right thing here. Oh, absolutely. Right? She moxied up the strength of Will to call the police on the man she loved because she did trust her gut. Mm-hmm. She did. And she knew something was off, way off, and these puzzle pieces that she's finally starting to fit together, even though she doesn't have all of them, and they've told her twice, nah, he's cleared, and mm-hmm. she still knew it wasn't right. Exactly. She is incredibly brave doing this, and mm-hmm. it must have caused her such emotional anguish at the same time. Especially when she thought, oh, he couldn't be a murderer, but I could ruin his career. Yeah, yeah. I mean, her mental state is going to continue to deteriorate. Her drinking is going to get worse. She can't sleep a full night. She says, I could visualize Ted finding out I knew the truth. He'll murder me, I thought. But first, he'll murder Molly in front of me, and then my mother and father. Can you, can you even imagine? No. Spinning this, this around? This is the first time she thought, like, oh my god, he could actually murder me. Right. She really did know the truth deep down, but she couldn't fathom that it was actually true. Liz decides to tell her father what she's been thinking and how it relates to Ted. You have to be absolutely certain before you contact the police. You would ruin his career if you're mistaken. Are you that sure? 
and he declines to help her unless she's absolutely sure. Oh my god, she realizes her dad has chosen Ted over her. What a completely distressing, lonely revelation that your dad has chosen Ted over you. Just to make sure, even though I'm sure she's spoken to them numerous times about these fears that she's had, it's still one of those things, like we said in the beginning, where people go on to say that she was flaky. I think she's obviously distressed. No one wants to think that their boyfriend could be a murderer, so she's very conflicted. But still, the, the support's not there, especially when she obviously can't really back up her claims. It's speculation, but they're rooted in facts. What she's going through, it's psychological cognitive dissonance that's having inconsistent thoughts, beliefs, attitudes, especially relating to behavioral decisions, attitude changes. So you can see this is Liz. Liz is the poster child here. She thinks that Ted may be responsible for these missing women. He lies. He's got crutches, the plaster Paris, being at Lake Shamamish. But her Ted, this man she loves, she knows him. He can be a jerk without question, but he loves her and Molly. They've been together for years, and even the police are telling her it's not him. Uh But deep down, she knows it is. She saw that look in his eyes when he pushed her into the icy river. So this is a psychological quagmire that is horribly painful, terribly disturbing, and it needs some kind of resolution. And something is going to have to break this this logjam. And she's drinking to numb herself, to numb this psychological pain. Yeah, it's pretty bad. But, you know, believe it or not, Christmas in 1974... She says that things are more or less back to normal with Ted. And Ted goes on to spend the holidays with her and her family in Salt Lake. And she says, hardly the action of a madman. The shadows were lifting, and I thank God for the peace of mind I was beginning to feel again. So after all this, normalcy. Pendulum swung the other direction. Yeah. And, you know, after the holidays, Liz decides to call the Salt Lake City Police Department and put her fears to rest once and for all. And they tell her the same thing as Hergesheimer. When King County looked into Ted, he checked out fine. So, again, she's relieved. But a few months later, in March of 75, those gut feelings came back as the remains of Linda Healy, Susan Rancourt, Roberta Parks, and Brenda Ball were found, all less than 12 miles from where Janice and Denise Naslin were found. And still reeling with this emotional gaslighting on top of all of these poor women finally being found, Liz turns 30 in April. She's conflicted by this and the fact that she thought at this point in her life she's going to be married and having a few kids. I mean, she's a little past 25, but this is almost like a quarter-life crisis that she's having. She's still trying to get on with her day-to-day, not thinking that this man's a murderer, but also thinking that maybe he could be. She really does get down on herself, and this is her fault, and she should get on with her life. And she almost thinks that, you know, maybe I should start distancing myself from Ted, even though we know she's not going to. And that June, Molly's home by herself. You know, she's, what, 12 at this point? So she's home by herself, and when Liz comes home, she's just got, like, this little smile on her face, you know, a little bit secretive. Someone grabs Liz from behind, and guess what? It's Ted. He's made a surprise visit to Seattle. And she's caught off guard, but she's happy that he's there. Mm. However, we still notice a few things. She notices that his license plate isn't screwed on to the car like it normally would be. 
He says it fell off. That's the explanation. That was enough for her, though. She didn't want to keep thinking these thoughts, but, you know, anytime she would react, it was always her. No amount of time given to her by Ted or the love he had for her would ever be enough. It was never enough. I think he actually says that to her when they get into an argument about it. And she knew that it was now or never, and if he didn't want to get married, then it was going to be over. She's going to put her foot down. So that July, they have a serious discussion about their future. And after some talk, they decide, you know what, they're going to do it. They're going to finally get married. All right. Finally. After all this time. But guess what? No one's excited about it. <laughs> Why would they? Her, her parents aren't excited. They're actually silent. Even her boss tells her this isn't a good idea. Angie, the one that she has relayed the most of her fears to, is like, I sure hope you know what you're doing. Well, why Why was no one happy for them? Doesn't my dad love Ted? Didn't he defend him? Why would anyone be happy in this decision when she confided her worst fears to them? That Ted was that Ted, a killer. Let's have the engagement party. Woohoo! No, no, no parties being thrown. Exactly, right? Just in that August, Liz finds out that Ted had uh, given his youngest brother a bicycle. We know Ted doesn't have money, so it's just another thing that Ted steals. And she had even said, you know, we're going to be getting married now, even though no one's happy about it, but you have to give up the stealing. So she had given them this choice. You know, one of the things that I know from the investigation into Janice Ott, her bicycle was never found. Was this the bicycle that could have perhaps been Janice's and why they had never found that? Because Ted had driven it across state lines and given it to his brother? Sure wonder. Makes you wonder. Yeah. But, you know... She's like, you stole again. I can't believe this. This is over. And Ted actually seems relieved that she's mad enough to call off the wedding. He just says to her, I want you to know that I'll always love you. And that was it. It was over. Liz even says that she felt freer than she had in years. And something even told her that this really was the end. Well, she's made a decision herself. Mm -hmm, She stopped waiting for him. To make a decision. She's made a decision. That's why she feels relieved. All right. Well, Liz saw Ted's landlady, who happened to mention that a female detective had been by. And that perks up Liz's ears. Uh-huh. So she decides to call uh, Hergesheimer for more information. I thought he was cleared. Why are you checking Ted out now? She gets in touch with Kathy McChesney. She is the female partner and finds out that Ted had been arrested in Salt Lake City for evading a police officer. That was the day she had last seen the Bundys when Ted wasn't around. Liz goes down to see Kathy and she advises that Ted's been charged with possession of burglary tools. But what they found in his car would be better to assault someone or tie them up. The constant question, what prompted her to call the police this time? She went through her whole story again. Liz felt that Kathy seemed to understand her better because she was a woman. Yeah. There might be something to that. There might be a little bit there. Right. Nothing had ever seemed out of the ordinary with Tend until July of 1974 when their girls from Lake Sammamish disappeared. Now, Kathy asked Liz if Ted ever wore a ski mask. No. Maybe shovel snow? No. Kathy attempted to show her a picture of some of the items found in the car. 
It was awkward with how she was holding the photo and attempting to hide other things. And she looked at Liz and said, please don't tell anyone I showed you this and handed Liz the photo. The photo not only included a ski mask, but there were gloves, ropes, handcuffs, Ted's gym bag, a crowbar, ice pick, and a pair of pantyhose with slits cut out for eyes. Sounds like a hit kit to me. Oh, it's a hit kit. That's why he got arrested. After being given a list of dates and times of disappearances, Kathy advises that if she could place Ted anywhere at those times, then they can rule him out as a suspect. She can't. Liz begins assisting Kathy with her investigation into Ted. They go through the canceled checks that she took from Ted's, the receipts. She calls her parents and tells them not to get further involved with Ted due to the arrest, as he often visits in Salt Lake. Her mother recalls Friday night, May 31st, 1974, when they were visiting Seattle. Ted took them all out for pizza and then missed Molly's baptism the next day. Liz recalls that she had no idea where Ted went that night, but that was the night Brenda Ball disappeared from the Flame Tavern in Seattle. Those little things starting to connect. Connect those dots. Yep. One day, Kathy throws Liz a curveball. She asked Liz if she knew about Ted's old girlfriend from San Francisco, Susan Phillips. Liz recounts that Ted had bid there in the summer of 73 and had looked her up to prove that you could never go back. Well, Kathy spoke with Susan and to many of Susan's girlfriends. Ted and Susan were engaged to be married around Christmas 1973. That must have been a shocker. Whoa. Whoa. This is the man who wouldn't marry Liz... They got marriage licenses, tore them up. What? What do you mean he was engaged to marry Susan? Liz and Molly were in Salt Lake that Christmas, and Ted had taken Liz's car, so she couldn't go anywhere when Ted was off on a ski trip with his classmates. Or so he said. Well, that proves he's a dishonest lover, but that still doesn't make him a murderer. Oh, come on. Susan called it off, though. Ted didn't call or write her when she returned to San Francisco. He had turned cold, so he could forget about getting married. Liz knew why he was being that way. That was when she had aborted her child for him so that he could succeed in life. Liz asked Kathy for a copy of the picture of Susan and Ted together. It went in her purse as a reminder that he was one son of a bitch. That asshole. What? Makes you wonder. Cheating, lying, stealing psychopath. It makes you wonder, as we get to these letters, was he writing other women these same letters? Oh, yeah. But enter Kathy's partner, Detective Bob Keppel, a name that we know to be synonymous with the TED investigation. He's been there from the beginning. Also, Ira Beal from the Bountiful Police Department and Jerry Thompson from the Salt Lake City Police. And they kind of wanted to talk to Liz and part of the investigation, especially since we had an investigation going into Seattle, Salt Lake City, two states now. Thompson looks to interrogate Liz and ask her if it's okay to record their conversation. She says no. Well, that would make his job more difficult, huh? She dislikes him immediately. Ted was a strong suspect in the attempted abduction of Carol Durange, whom we mentioned earlier, the one that got away. This was the case that prompted Liz to speak with her bishop and have him call the police. They were going to meet with Carol and show her pictures of Ted as there had been a quote-unquote communication breakdown roughly a year ago. Uh Understandably, because Liz has full confidence that Ted is not the murderer, she got angry that Carol hadn't been shown the picture sooner. 
And I don't know if it was because she felt that Ted was innocent or because she knew he was guilty. But regardless, this guy, he's absolutely frustrating. And he's like, you're kind of jealous, aren't you? Like, the way that he talks, like, I'd probably punch him in the face if, if I had the opportunity. But, you know, they talk about his shoes. Did he ever have a mustache? Well, you know, Ted had a fake mustache. Yeah. And, you know, did I have a fake mustache? Not. But he, she described it as straight across and squared off at the ends, and he wore it every once in a while just to, like, have fun, do whatever. But Thompson kept referring to it as being droopy. No, it's squared off. Oh, it's droopy, right? No. And the sketch of the suspect that they had showed her didn't come close to looking like Ted. And so she also recalls an incident when Thompson asked her if she recalls Ted ever having a crowbar or a metal rod with the handle taped off. And this is what she said. Well, one night, several years ago, Ted had left my place to go home and study. But a little while later, I heard someone coming up the front stairs quietly as if trying not to be heard. I stepped out into the hallway, and it was Ted. He had an odd look on his face, and he was retrieving a crowbar that had been under the radiator in the hall. Hmm. The pockets of his coat were bulging, and on an impulse, I reached into a pocket to see what was in there. He backed away quickly, but I had pulled out a surgical glove. Okay. Yeah. This is normal. This this is normal. Well, today it's normal. Right Uh, now it's normal. She recounts the story, and she goes on to say she loved Ted very, very much and prayed that he wasn't involved, but she just didn't know how she felt now. And, you know, this contradiction would turn up in many books, making Liz look like a flake, as she had put it previously. No, she's not a flake. She's just very conflicted. Absolutely. And from Utah, Ted still calls and sends her flowers with cards that read, I'll love you forever, writes her this letter. He had been baptized into the Mormon church, which Liz could interpret in two ways. He, A, had found a woman to convert for, or B, he was involved in these crimes. So she decided it was another woman. And so one day, Ted called and said he was going to be coming to Seattle. And on Kathy's advice, she called him back and she's like, please don't come. She knew now that he had been arrested. And upon being confronted about this, Ted lies to her and tells her, you know what, it's nothing. He didn't do anything. That search was obviously illegal, trying to manipulate her into thinking I was violated. My rights were violated. He's pissed off that the cops are calling people that he knows. And he didn't press her for what she told them, though. Thank God. He's still lying. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. All I mean, the time. At this point, I don't really expect him to tell her the truth, but hey. Mm-hmm. On October 2nd, 1975, Ted was arrested for kidnapping and attempted murder. It was only a matter of time. Carol Durant had picked Ted out of a lineup, and his bail had been set for $100,000. He wasn't going anywhere. Oh, no. No. She told her parents why Ted had been arrested and that he was a suspect in the disappearance of young women around Seattle and Salt Lake City. Uh, I wonder what the parents had to say then, huh, Dad? Yeah, exactly right. What, Dad, huh? Liz spiraled into her alcoholism and drank until she passed out most nights. And my heart breaks for her. Mm-hmm. Thompson had advised that Ted might not make the Seattle news as he was in Salt Lake, but the papers caught wind of it. Ex Evans' campaign aide held in kidnap. Is Utah Ted the Seattle Ted? The headlines? Whoa. Yeah. Liz begins receiving extremely heartfelt letters from Ted. Quote, I can never hope to compensate for the sorrow and anguish I have caused you. Very eloquent. 
He is. He writes a good letter. He talks mm-hmm. the good talk on paper. This is most likely to have an ally. This is most likely to have an ally and someone on his side. If only he knew how untrue she had been to him. So if I give you one more thing, it is one more part of me that cannot be taken away. I give you my love, as deep as it is powerful as any human being can have for another. I give it to you as the woman who has captured my very soul, every last grain. There is no one to whom I could give my love for the rest of my life. My love for you is life itself. Without you, there would be no life. Liz ate it up. That's for sure. She ate it up. Any, all of his words, she said, I wish he would start hating me as I deserve. She felt responsible for him being locked up. She finally tells him what she had done, that she had doubts, and he doesn't react the way she intended. If you told them the truth, then no harm has been done. (laughs) I have to tell you, I didn't expect him to react that way either. Did not either, but he was convinced that she might not have had any of these thoughts. And he's thinking, oh, Liz, I have manipulated her so much that she won't say anything bad against me. And the truth will set me free. He still needs an ally. Yes. She's still a toy in the Mm -hmm. chest. So he still needs her. So Captain Mackey, Kathy's boss, had determined that Ted had been in each location that the girls disappeared based on Ted's oil company credit card receipts. Liz recalled the time that Ted's license plate has not been attached to the car, but was propped up in the windshield, and that continued to bother her, but now it was relevant. She readily told them this piece of information. Liz starts to wonder, did they die because they looked like her? He had seemed so together, and I felt so screwed up. He loved life, but was locked away in a prison. I hated life, yet I was free. I had double-crossed him, and I couldn't live with my conscience. I needed help. Well, that's absolutely true. She really does. Liz finally goes to see a psychiatrist after all this time who advises her, don't speak with Ted or don't have anything further to do with the investigation. And that doesn't last. This is good advice, by the way. And it's really a shame she didn't take. She should have withdrawn. She should have focused on herself. She's raising a child. Taking care of yourself is the greatest gift you can give to a child. Keep that in mind, parents. We tend to do for everybody else and forgetting to take care of ourselves. And that never works out in the end. It has to be a lifestyle choice to take care of yourself and your children. Absolutely. Yeah. And on Thursday, November 20th, she gets a call from Ted and he's out on bond. So he's out. They strike up a conversation for a few days and they spend hours on the phone together. For Liz, it's almost as if everything is normal. She can still have a part of Ted. And on November 24th, Liz calls Ted to wish him a happy birthday. And she calls his parents' house to chat with him because he's staying there. He's not there. And she discovers that he has a new friend in Utah named Kim. And that's where his parents have normally stayed when they were visiting in Salt Lake. Oh, boy. Obviously, she gets pissed off, but what can she do about it at this point? So she decides to spend Thanksgiving with her friends, something like a Friendsgiving. And Ted shows up unannounced in Seattle. She's definitely a little bit scared to be left alone with him, and for good reason. And so she's like, you know what? I'm still going out with my friends. You can call me later. Ted essentially follows them to the restaurant looking to speak with Liz in private. So this is not abnormal, him showing up to places where she is. Well, he's done this repeatedly. Uh Uh-huh. 
She runs into the restroom. She calls her therapist and she's like, don't talk to him. And he eventually leaves. Not, not sure if someone kindly asked him to. Yeah. <laughs> kindly in quotes. But when her friend brings her back home, she's like, hey, can you please go in and check the apartment to make sure he isn't there? But as soon as her friend leaves, Ted calls her and she decides to meet him for a drink at a restaurant. Angie strongly disapproves as Liz smartly calls her and says, hey, I'm going out for a drink with Ted. So thankfully, she's telling people about where she's going, what she's doing. At least that's smart. Yeah. Yeah. And and so while they're out together, she's like, oh, this would be the last time. But that night she is in her, I don't know if I want to call it like a drunken state or she's drunk on the love that she has for Ted. But they decided whatever was going to happen was going to happen to them together. Oh, my God. As Liz falls into the Ted trap once more, her friends actually start to abandon her, even Angie. After all the things she did, the lengths she took to ensure that Ted wasn't Ted, wasn't that Ted, what did she expect to happen going back to this man that she had all these doubts about? That's now been arrested. Mm Mm-hmm. With a hit kit. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And, you know, they start being followed by detectives and private investigators. He's still under suspicion. And Ted begins taking her everywhere he goes, using her as a protective shield. Right. You know, even though she was that for him, it didn't stop her from being jealous of other women, such as this Kim Andrews person. You know, she listens in on a private conversation that you have over the phone one day. And she said it was obvious from their tone how much they cared for each other. And she has a breakdown in public, causing a scene, screaming and hitting Ted, who obviously is like, the police are watching. You can't do this. We have to be a solid front. She goes back home. You're blowing my cover. (laughs) Exactly. You are blowing my sense of normalcy that I am trying to convey. And, um, you know, he calls her repeatedly. And, you know, she finally relents and lets him back into the apartment. And she goes on to say, you know, he was so obviously desperate for me that I just had to let him back in, using his words. And as time goes on, Ted spends time between Salt Lake and Seattle. Liz doesn't like being alone, and she's still drinking, and she hated the idea of him being with Kim Andrews even more. But she found it easier to speak with him about certain things over the phone as opposed to -to face-to-face. Like, hey, Ted, um, they said you were in Colorado. Why were you in Colorado? Why, why did you never tell me that? Well, Liz, uh, you know, it helps me think. Driving helps me think. That's why I went for a drive. Uh, well, here's your fun fact for the episode, everybody. The drive from Salt Lake City to Vail, Colorado is just about seven hours long. Yeah, I, I, I take seven-hour drives to clear my head. Never. Not that, once. That, a day out on the road to help you think when you're trying to go to class. Yeah. You miss class, buddy. Yeah. That's, that's not helping you think. No. And after that, Liz actually receives a call from a Mormon police officer and he asks her to quote unquote, do the right thing. Live by church principles and be a good girl. So obviously after this phone call, on top of all of the other times that she felt this way, she felt guilty. Guilty of not living up to church standards. What she had done to Ted, not being a good mother. Just guilty of being alive. And murder bookies, that concludes part one of our three-part series on The Phantom Prince, My Life with Ted Bundy by Liz Kendall. Join us next time for part two, where we'll start out with the beginning of the end.
where Ted goes to prison for attempting kidnapping and assault of Carol Durant. We'll watch as his saga unfolds as Liz dives deeper into her guilt and pain, only to realize that everything that she's felt within her gut all those years was actually the terrifying truth. If you want to get a head start on our next book, which we'll be doing throughout May, pick up your copy of The Good Nurse, a true story of medicine, madness, and murder by Charles Graber. Stephen King describes it in one word, chilling. Charlie Cullen was a trusted medical professional tasked with upholding an ethical responsibility for those entrusted to his care. However, Charlie Cullen had a dark side. For a career that spanned 16 years across nine hospitals, Charlie Cullen was said to be responsible for the deaths of 400 people. Join us as we read through Charles Graber's chilling, rhythmic, and meticulously crafted book after years of research that will keep you reading well into the night to reach the ultimate conclusion. Just when you thought you didn't like hospitals, you'll certainly never look at them the same way again. And thank you for listening, Murder Bookies. Please reach out to us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter, or even shoot us an email at jillandtara at murdershelfbookclub.com. We'd definitely be happy to hear from you and incorporate your thoughts on our readings into the show. Follow us or subscribe to our show on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Stitcher, or Podbean. We're actually now on iHeartRadio as well. And let our episodes just shoot right into that feed of yours. And if you can, please leave us a five-star review. Every little thing you do helps us to keep going further. Until next time, Murder Bookies, happy reading. Stay safe.